This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the bookcase. I'm Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson, Kate's father. Proud father. (laughs) Well, glad to hear that. This week, anyway. Um, This week, we're going to be talking to Claire Stanford. She's a new writer who's written a book called Happy For You. I... I'm going to I'm going to leave it to my betters, my father, the one who's occasionally proud of me to sort of summarize the plot just a little bit before we talk about why we chose it and why it's such a great book. Well, I think it's an interesting premise and it's a premise which is very timely with the explosion of apps and the internet and how people depend on it so for so many things. But she starts Well, she works for the third most popular internet company. She says that in the first sentence. And right away, you know, this book is going to be a little bit off, that she's got a nice sense of humor. But as you read on, you realize not only does she have a nice sense of humor, but she has a very interesting premise. And that is that the third most popular internet company is trying to develop an app that will tell you whether or not you're happy. Is that possible? Is it an impossible task? The main character in it, whose name is Evelyn Kaminsky Kamamoto, she goes to work for this company and works on this app. Is it possible to do? And that really is the theme through the book. It's a hilarious and satirical novel about something that actually was felt very personal to me, which is, so I, I have struggled with depression. I have always felt in this country as an American citizen that if I am not a hundred percent happy all the time, that I'm missing something. That if I'm not happy, it's my fault because there's so many things available to me. It maybe it's consumerism or capitalism. I'm not sure, but I feel like it seems to me that we get in trouble when we assume that things are going to make us happy. And it seems like this country promises happiness in all of its advertisements, in its media, in its apps, in its internet. America sells the idea of happiness. And I think if you aren't feeling happy, sometimes you think to yourself, well, what's wrong with me? And this book, I think, hilariously brings my inner neuroses about that to life. It is a book that, as you read it, you think, how is she going to resolve this? And I'm not sure in the long run, I don't know. I had all sorts of different endings in my mind as this app develops or doesn't develop. And and I think readers will find the same thing in their minds as they go through. How is she going to pay this off? How is she going to finish it? And I'll be interested if people have comments about, about whether they think she did it. She did it well. She's a first time author. And both of us, Kate and I both are very interested in first-time authors because it's a it's as the movie title says a risky business uh when you get into uh, writing a first novel and as i as we talk about a little bit with her it's also an act of bravery so this is clara stanford her book happy for you 
Claire Stanford, it is a great pleasure to include you in the bookcase. We're happy that you have taken the time. Uh, one of our earlier interviews, it was pointed out to us that a wonderful quote from Edith Wharton, where she said that the first sentence of a novel should encapsulate the novel. Your first sentence, when I went to my interview at the third most popular internet company, I tried to make myself look like a real person. I think it sort of encapsulates the novel. Do you? Thanks so much for having me, Annette. Thanks so much for this first amazing question. I love Edith Warden. I hadn't heard that line from Edith Warden before, but I love, love, love her work. And I love that line. I had been actually really thinking in my novel about wanting that first sentence to encapsulate the whole thing, as you're saying, to really give the reader a taste not only of Evelyn's voice and personality, but of some of the stakes of the novel. So thinking through this question of the third most popular internet company, and it's important it's the third most and not the first most, and also that it's a testing situation for her of the interview, but especially this question of what is it like to try to make oneself a real person? What does this mean? Why is this character so consumed with us or thinking about this from the very first sentence of her story. And to Evelyn, you know, these questions revolve around a lot of different issues in, in the novel. But it's interesting because the book is also about, in some ways, the uniquely American pursuit of capturing happiness. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you, what was it about sort of the concept and emotion of happiness that made you want to sit down and say, I think I want to write 250 pages or close to 250 mm -hmm. pages about its pursuit. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'd always wanted to write something about a technology company objectively measuring emotions because I felt that in this kind of increasingly algorithmized world that we were in, like that this was not that ridiculous of a premise. And what would it be like for a technology company to be trying to objectively quantify something that's so unquantifiable and is so individual? I narrowed it down to happiness because that just seemed for one, like the one of the most primal and one of the most complex of all emotions, one of the most individuated um, and subjective. And then also I was interested in exploring what kind of feels like, again, this uniquely American obsession with happiness, this really powerful happiness culture that's arisen, and especially the last, you know, maybe 10 years. Although happiness has always been kind of a uniquely American obsession. It's really ingrained in American history. But in the last couple couple years, 10 years, just all these happiness kind of companies, happiness commodities, all these different products that you can buy and programs you can do to self-optimize. And also this pressure on the individual to be self-optimizing toward happiness instead of on us kind of looking at larger systems in the country and wondering if there are ways to change them to make everyone happier and have a better quality of life. But like, what what is it about the country and about the experience of being an American that is about being pressured to have individual responsibility for your happiness? And it's almost like you've failed if you have like a, a day, a week where you're not feeling happy in your life or kind of always upbeat, there's this really specific pressure around that, I think, in this country. Not to get too philosophical, but why? Why Why is it so uniquely American? Why is the pursuit of happiness not as central to other cultures as it seems to be in this country? I mean, I'm not sure I have an answer to that. It's one of the things the book is asking. But I mean, I do think it has to do some degree about how America is so individualized and so 
much pressure on the self, kind of pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps and taking care of oneself, that we have this idea that you need to be responsible for your own happiness instead of like a social safety net or instead of having enough parks and enough healthcare <laughs> that, that everyone is just feeling happy. But in the book I'm exploring, I mean, I also, you know, this is based on my research when I was writing the book that there is this thing called the World Happiness Index. I mean, there are these, these kind of attempts to quantify and compare different countries' happiness levels, but it becomes very confusing because it's not just that America necessarily is more interested in happiness, but is possibly more willing to talk about it. It's kind of considered a boasting, right? Whereas, like, mm. East, so in the, it's in the book, but East Asian countries yeah. frequently rank pretty low on the world happiness, you know, index or much lower than you would expect considering their quality of life. And the question is, are people really not happy in those countries or are East Asian cultures more, do they think of happiness in a different way? Are they less interested in proclaiming happiness in the way that maybe Americans are. So these are really interesting questions to me too. And they come and play in the book because Evelyn's half Japanese and her father is Japanese American. And he has a very different orientation toward questions of happiness than, than Evelyn does. And then really than the company does. And so it's a little bit of a push pull for her between his kind of more, in my opinion, more complex understanding of happiness, which has to do with contentment, fulfillment, stability, and the company's very simplistic understanding of happiness, which has to do with, you know, very immediate gratification, I think. You talk about world happiness, I get sucked into those internet things where they say, here's the 30 happiest countries in the world. And yeah. so then you get sucked in and you look at number 30 and number 29 and number 28, all of which of course come with advertising. But, and I forgot what number one is. And you always think, why do I live in Finland? Oh. Yes. You eventually get to the app that is supposed to quantify or enhance happiness. Basically, it's just asking you, are you happy? Are you not happy? Or I don't know. That strikes me mm -hmm. as if, if you, if you spread that question around the world, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure that you'd get anything definitive. Yeah, I mean, with the app, the questions do ask you just to self-reflect, and then they become more and more invasive as the app gets to know the user more. I mean, I think this is one of the questions. It's being beta tested in the novel. Evelyn is not sure whether the app is just asking kind of formulaic questions or whether the app is asking questions that are very targeted at her. So like, for example, the app eventually asks, do you think your parents are proud of you? I mean, the S is in parentheses too, which is important in her case. Um, and she has to say yes, no, or not sure. Um, or do you think that you're, I think in the intake, it's do you think you're likable or unlikable, um, which is a little nod to kind of ongoing literary conversations about unlikable female protagonists the unlikable female narrators. So Evelyn kind of vacillates back and forth on whether she considers herself likable or unlikable. And so the app is asking her some of those kind of questions. And then it's also doing some biometric reading. So that was one of the places where I also was doing some research into what kind of biometrics go into this. Um, but it is a struggle in the novel. And it's also that Evelyn has been hired along with a couple other PhDs, other academics, to figure out these questions. And as we learn later in the novel, the app basically doesn't use any of the questions that in the end, even though she and her team have been spending six months to, you know, nine months figuring out all these questions, they get totally disregarded when it comes time to actually build the app. And they're kind of just there for show, these researchers, so that the company can say, we brought in these academics, you know, 
but in fact, they didn't actually use any of the complex questioning that they came up with. We went with these kind of overly simplistic questions. And I think that that's kind of how my, at least my experience of tech has been that when I'm doing any of these kinds of apps, especially in my research to do this, that they are asking just these incredibly simplistic questions. There's no way to get like the complexity and individuality of human experience into a drop down question, you know, menu that's going to be just 10 questions long or something like that. So that's part of the ridiculousness of the whole premise. We've talked to a lot of writers about how they start a lot. You know, some novelists say I build a whole world around a character. John Irving starts with a last sentence and builds the book backwards. And, you know, one person wrote a whole novel from a writing exercise where they were supposed to just write from an unusual narrative perspective. When you decided you wanted to write a book about quantifying and exploring happiness, how did you start? Um, I mean, I actually started with trying out a character who worked at the company as a scientist. And that kept hitting a dead end for me because I think that person to actually work as the scientist, you have to 100% believe or at least 99% believe um, in the project. And so it wasn't creating enough conflict, both for Mm. internal conflict within the character and conflict within the story. So when I came up with the idea of having an outsider, which I honestly do not remember how Evelyn totally came about, but I came up with the idea of Evelyn or Evelyn emerged as someone who came in from the outside. Um, I wanted her to be a philosopher because that's someone who is thinking really deeply about things, right? They're committed to the process of thinking deeply and complex thought and to gray areas. And then to have someone leave that to come into a place that's very black and white and very simplistic is what really created a lot of the possibility for me. A lot did start with thinking through those first couple of sentences also and deciding to commit to making Evelyn or having Evelyn be a half half Japanese and half Jewish, which is similar to my background, and being able to really put that representation forward and think through some of the questions also around what it's like for a person who has felt kind of not like they fit into categories their whole life to now be in this very kind of categorized space, this highly categorizable space. I wrote I think some of the scenes where she's in college, which are kind of flashback scenes, are actually some of the earliest scenes in the novel. So those are really that I wrote. I mean, they're later in the novel. So kind of these getting to know Evelyn scenes, I think, were were some of the places that I really first began. But so she is what really brought this whole idea to fruition for me, for the novel. It is interesting to me that when you ask so many parents, what do they want for their children? They will say, I want them to be happy. Mm-hmm. And that always strikes me as such a strange answer because because it is not something you can objectively achieve. It is a byproduct mm-hmm. of living. Mm-hmm. And when you set out to do this, did you think this is an impossible goal that I'm setting? Or did you think maybe I'm exploring a question that really is possible, that you could come up with an algorithm that would be able to enhance and define happiness. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I knew I, I definitely thought it was impossible and I still think it's impossible even as tech companies are increasingly trying to do it. But I, what I was really interested in was that to me, this is clearly impossible. So why are there so many people in the country and maybe the world who are not only interested in creating these apps and trying to come up with a science, but also are interested in using these apps, right? What what kind of hunger is there in people that they're hoping is going to be satisfied or fixed by 
using these kinds of apps that are helping us with or purport to help us. I mean, nothing is at the point of joyful where it's going to objectively measure your happiness. But we do, we are starting to have some of these um, kind of like emotion trackers. This kind of technology is starting to bubble up. And the interest to me was and that to me, it was so clearly impossible. I mean, I am also interested in the book and thinking through what all the different motivations are of the different people at the company and and whether those are authentic motiv- motivations or not. And Evelyn's boss in particular has family history that is motivating her in, I think, an authentic way to try to see that the technology as benevolent. I mean, I think in the end, in the novel, Evelyn's point of view is that the technology is not benevolent. But there are certainly lots of people out there who think it's a benevolent kind of technology and that this is something that can really help society. So I wanted to just kind of dig into that too. Where is that coming from? So it's impossible then to probably put technology in place to quantify happiness. Now, having written this book, do you think it's possible for anyone to succeed at happiness as pursuit? Ooh, that's also a good question. I think that basically once we start overthinking things, it becomes a lot more difficult to be happy at all. So I was going to say achieve a goal, but really to be happy. And it's really once you start you know, ruminating about anything, overthinking something, that it becomes a separate thing from you, right? So one of Evelyn's things that she's struggling with in the novel is how to just be, how to just exist in moments without having to overthink them, without analyzing them, and to just enjoy moments that have pure beauty or pure joy in them. I want to ask about writing a first novel. Uh, that's a, a, a very sort of brave thing to do. You write a novel, you you think, is this... Is this somewhat presumptuous to think I can be a novelist? Uh, And then you work on this thing for a long time and then you present it to the world and it's you who's out there naked and alone and getting the reactions (laughs) of the world. Is it scary? And as you go along, did you keep thinking to yourself, is what I'm doing crazy or does this really have a shot? Mm hmm. Um, Well, thank you for saying it's brave. I really appreciate that. I definitely had many, many, many moments of thinking, is this crazy? I call them my dark nights of the soul (laughs) while writing this novel. They usually happen mostly at two in the morning when I couldn't sleep. Although also daytime dark moments of the soul, dark nights of the soul. I mean, it it is scary. Uh, I think I, I just felt that I really... One really wanted to see if I could do it. So while I was writing the novel, to me, it was a question of, can I bring this home? As tempting as my father makes it sound to be a writer yeah. <laughs> and be naked and alone. And I don't know if there was honey and bees involved. I don't. I think that's the name of a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> naked and alone. The story of a writer. Um, This book was really fascinating to me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I have always been fascinated by the fact that we as a country seem to pursue happiness, purchase happiness, shopping is a verb. So this book was really fascinating for me. I couldn't put it down. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, both of you, for reading so carefully and thoughtfully and for having me. I've loved this conversation. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid-fire questions for Claire Stanford. Claire, what was the most influential book in your life? I'm going to say Roberto Bolaño's The Savage Detectives, um, which I read at a very influential point in my life when I was right after graduating college. And it really showed me this density of prose and scope of story and made me want to be a writer. Favorite children's book? Uh, I don't have a specific one, but I definitely... The person that comes to mind is Berenstein Bears. So Berenstein Bears. <laughs> <laughs> book, e-reader, or audio? Uh, book. I, I did a little e-reading the last couple of years, as we all did, but I, I always return to the physical book. Do you spend more time reading or writing? More time reading. I think, I think definitely more time reading. Any revered book that you've read that you wish you hadn't? I'm in a PhD program, so I've read lots and lots of revered books that maybe I wish I hadn't, but I feel, um, what should I call out by name? Um, oh, you know what? I'll, I'll call this one. This wasn't even my PhD program. I've read other Saul Bellow and I love it, but The Adventures of Augie March is just not for me. And I just, I've tried and I've, I've read it and it just doesn't hit home for me. And I just don't understand that. When you're reading a book and you're not liking it, do you make yourself finish it or do you put it down? I used to make myself finish it. Now I put it down and I put it aside. And if sometimes, you know, a couple months later, I'll just want to return to it and it'll resonate completely differently. I'll be so engrossed by it. So this has also kind of shown me that I think the answer is to put aside for a while. Although it's painful. I have a really hard time not finishing. I'm, I'm a completist. So I always just tell myself I'm going to finish this you know, later when it's calling to me more. Did you read your reviews this time? And do you think you'll read your reviews again? I actually have managed to not read the reviews except for the New York Times review, um, which came out on Pub Day. So I couldn't help but read that. But also my team had all emailed me and saying it was a fantastic review. So it, it had like some framing for me. But I have man I've just I just pretend I've, I've so far managed to pretend that the book is basically still in my cloistered space. We'll see how long I can keep it up. So we'll, we'll see if I'll read them next time, too. <laughs> And a question that we stole from Stephen Colbert, but it's illustrative, I think. In, in five words, five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Oh, my gosh. What a difficult question. Okay. Um, thoughtful, compelling, 
brave, hopeful. Uh, one word left. Um, honest. Claire Stanford, if a, a fascinating and I think very, very funny book. What, what was your takeaway from talking to her? Well, just how timely it is. She did a lot of research for this. She she worked hard on this, trying to figure out what could be done with an app. And and so many people are so internet savvy and so app savvy these days. And so I, as I said at the beginning, I, all the way through, I was asking myself, not only can she pay this off, how does she resolve this? This, what I think is an impossible task to come up with an app that can measure happiness and whether you, the reader, are happy uh, or the app user are happy. But also as she goes through it, what kind of a construct does she envision that this app would have? What kind of questions would it ask? And and, and I, I was just really interested in that all the way through the book. Happiness sneaks up on me. Happiness sneaks up yep. on me because yep. it's those moments when you're in the backyard and the kids aren't fighting and you're tossing a ball around and the sunset happens to be really nice that night and you think, I am so lucky and in this moment, I am happy. That to me is what happiness is. And so the hunting down of it, the conquering it, the getting it, the buying it is a myth. And I worry that it is a myth that too many of us buy into. Well, she struggles with this very question of how you might be able to compose questions through an app that people would answer that would indicate whether they're happy. It's a really interesting premise. And I think a good read for folks, a, a novel that I think they'll enjoy. Claire Stanford, a great conversation, an interesting writer that I think we can expect more good work from. Um, and as we usually do on the bookcase, we are going to talk to uh, an independent bookstore. This one, this week, comes to us from Florida. Tell us a little bit about them, Dad. Southern Florida, actually. Uh, Mitchell Kaplan started a store called Books and Books, and he had some success with it. They now have four stores in Southern Florida, Miami, Coral Gables, at Al. And we had a chance to chat with him recently. Mitchell Kaplan, good to have you in the bookcase. You, you've got Southern Florida blanketed with what, four stores, right? Yeah, we have four stores in, uh, in the Miami area. And do Miami area people, Coral Gables, et cetera, do they read differently, do you think, than, than the rest of the country? Miami has always suffered from a uh, image problem when it came to anything serious happening down here. When I first opened over 40 years ago, I would talk to publishers about having authors appear in Miami, and they go, you know, we have this new non-prescription drug book out, and we'd love to send that author down, because there was a sense that, you know, it was all, it was all older people and beaches and that sort of thing. But I had one advantage, and that I was a bookseller, and I knew what people were reading. And they were reading books as sophisticated and interesting as anywhere else in the country. The one area that I think has always been consistent in Miami, which is probably very different than other places in the country, is that because of our multicultural and diverse community, over these last 40 years, the kinds of books that have stood out have been books that have dealt either written by or dealing with 
the community that is not only indigenous to Miami, but the community from Latin America, from the Caribbean. Uh, all of those voices have been voices that people have been hungering to read for so many years. So obviously, nobody decides to go into the book business because they want to make a gazillion dollars. So for you, I'm sort of wondering, you know, we love asking bookstores, was there a book for you? Was there a store for you where you were like, this is going to be, this is going to be my calling. This is going to be what I do. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if it was one book or one store, but I'm old enough to have grown up at a time when writers were my heroes. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, even as early as middle school, which was my junior high school, I, you know, the highest calling you could have was to write a book. And we've now been in business 40 years. What's happened is 40 years ago, you could do what I did, which was open a little 500 square foot bookshop and kind of make a difference. I was teaching high school in Miami at the time because I needed to earn a living. And I remember telling myself, if I could pay myself uh, as much as I'm making as a high school English teacher, I'll just go into the bookstore full time. And fortunately, we know how little English <laughs> teachers get paid. So it wasn't a very high bar that I had to cross. So Mitchell, after 40 years in the business, do you still get excited when you find an, an author that you didn't know about or a book that surprised you? And and what was the last time that happened? Oh, I, I surprised all the time. I mean, you know, we're very fortunate here in Miami that we have such a vibrant writing community. There are all kinds of books that, you know, I can talk to you about. I mean, there's there's a book that just came out, which is, I think, we talked earlier about the cultural melange that is Miami and why Miami developed as it did. There's a writer named Nicholas Griffin, who happens to be British, who just wrote an amazing book called Year of Dangerous Days, Miami in 1980. And anyone who knows anything about the Miami history is 1980 was a, a pivotal year in our history. And it made Miami to be the, the Miami it is today. During that one year, we had the Mariel Boatlift happen, which deposited about 100,000 Cuban refugees in Miami, exiles, who and the, and the city was not prepared for it. And at the same time, Miami began to, to see an influx of, of cash. And the, and the Federal Reserve was wondering, where's all, where's all this cash coming from? And it was the cocaine business. So it was the beginning of that. So that book just came out, and it amazing, amazing one-volume history. And then we have our, you know, the ones that help make Miami give Miami the sense of what Miami is. People like Carl Heiss and James W. Hall, all of these guys have been writing those broad black humor takes on Miami. And the funny thing is, even though they're broad and a lot of black humor, they're based in realities. You know, Dave Barry always has a line. His line is, Miami is the only city in America where the driving is so crazy because everyone is driving the road from their city of origin. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. When somebody comes in and says, I'm looking for the summer book of 2022, what are you putting in their hands? Well, 
it's interesting because it's not a typical summer book. It just happened to be published this summer. And it's to me a book that I am just, I just loved. It's by Hernan Diaz and it's called Trust. Uh, Have you read it? Yes, we have him on. We have him on. He's coming on. Oh, oh, he's great. He's really, really brilliant. It is to me, I think it, I think it may win a bunch of awards by the end of the year. It's so brilliant the way it's written in these four distinct narrative styles. Mitchell Kaplan, obviously your your love of books is infectious and your love of bookstores is infectious as well. Mitchell has Southern Florida blanketed with four stores, books and books, which he could also call books and books and books and books and books, but he, he stuck with just two. You'll find his stores in Miami, Coral Gables, and other places around Southern Florida. Mitchell Kaplan, thank you ever so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you both. And you guys, what you're doing is so amazing. It's such an amazing podcast. I love the fact that you are, you know, bringing books to the widest possible audience. Thank you on behalf of booksellers everywhere. Oh, we're having a ball. Mitchell Kaplan from Books and Books in Southern Florida. By the way, we're interested in the suggestions that people have sent in as they rate this podcast. And one of the things we appreciate, and I think was a good admonition for us, is that when you can, let us know who's going to be on next week, uh, because it gives us a, a incentive, maybe, to listen. Uh, we hope it does, at least. And so uh, I should say that next week we'll be talking to an author who has had some great success in the past, won a Pulitzer Prize uh, with a book called A Visit from the Goon Squad. The author is Jennifer Egan. She has written a book that pairs with that book that came out 12 years ago. Her new book is called The Candy House. And she is a really, really interesting writer. We'll talk to her next week. But Kate? I am really looking forward to that conversation. All right, stay tuned so you can hear about the great folks who work on this show and, of course, the sign-off from Claire Stanford. Thanks for listening. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Eru Ekpenobi, and Elizabeth Russo. And a little coda to take us off the air, if you would. Uh, Keep reading and keep writing. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.